Welcome to The Truth in His Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And today, I'm, I'm very happy to be joined by my guest who has been heralded as a singer of immense power and fervor and one of the most powerful voices of our time, a creator, curator, performer at the intersection of many histories, cultures, and aesthetics. He is engaged in work that blends opera, art song, contemporary classical music, uh, spirituals, gospels, and songs of protest as a means to tell a deeply personal story of perseverance that connects to all of humanity. Please welcome Devon Tynes. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for for coming on. And like, I, I really want to do that. I don't know if you follow basketball back in the day. I really want to have that Chicago Bull sort of intro and I give the longer <laughs> intros with the music and everything behind me. Uh, so be, before I get too deep into like the conversation about your work and things that are, are coming up, um, I want to like... Let's start off with something that either you'll find like this is easy or you'll find terrifying. Share your story. Tell us your story. Like, you know, <laughs> some of that. At what point did you want to pursue the classical arts and some of your background? I'm I'm seeing Juilliard, I'm seeing Harvard. So let's let's get into it. Let's dive right in. How much time you got? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The floor is yours. <laughs> yeah, 35 years now. <laughs> um, so, yeah, my story in a nutshell, um, a very large nutshell, perhaps, <laughs> is that um, I grew up in rural northern Virginia. I lived primarily with my grandparents. Um, my grandfather was in the military for 30 years and retired uh, a chief warrant officer from the Pentagon. And my grandmother was an educator, mainly in special education. And when they decided to retire, they wanted to go home to uh, where their families were planted, which is about an hour and a half southwest of D.C. in horse country. And that was a very complicated context to grow up in because, um, you know, generations, three or four or five generations back from my grandparents were enslaved on right. that land. And I grew up maybe 20 miles down the road from where parts of my family were sharecroppers and parts of my family um, were on various plantations. And those places are now large Virginia um, farms. I mean, in Virginia, we call them farms, but they're really like large ranch estates. Um, and so it's interesting driving around, you know, the remnants of these places as you're on the school bus. <laughs> and you're, you're going to school with people who, you know, may tangentially be connected to all of that context. Um, but I, I think it, it led to, you know, a a quickening of my awareness of kind of a double reality or behind the veil or a double consciousness. And it led to um, a life of trying to reconcile the life I had with my family and my church family, you know, um, the Black Baptist Church, Providence Baptist Church being basically the, the community center that I knew, you know, religious, yes, but also just a place of gathering and a place of uh, growth and learning from extended family. Reckoning that with my school experience, which was predominantly white, I was one of very, very few Black students in school. I was one of only two people of color in the gifted and talented program from middle school on through high school. But um, I found that I had a strong aptitude for a lot of different things. I excelled um, in my academics. And I really wanted to go to school to do everything but school. <laughs> I went to extracurriculars. Um, I started playing violin when I was in elementary school and ended up playing that for 14, 15 years overall. Um, played in the chamber orchestra, was a concert master of that, went on to play it in, in college. Um, but then I also got into singing. Um, yeah. When I was little, everybody 
in my family, my church family sang, no matter what you wanted to do, you were in the choir. <laughs> and um, I just remember hours and hours long of um, choir rehearsals. And it, it's interesting that that experience is very foundational and finds its way into my musical practice um, right now in all kinds of realms and classical and beyond. Um, but I didn't really realize I had a real talent for singing until I was in high school. My grandfather actually realized that I had a unique voice. Uh, in his retirement, he directed some church choirs, and he's a very charismatic man who would come home and say, how are you? And one day I said, <laughs> I am fine. And he said, wow, I think you've got a, <laughs> I think you've got a unique voice and you should try to do something with it. So he encouraged me to join uh, my high school choir. And then um, I started doing musicals for fun. I kept getting the lead in the musicals, even though I wasn't really gunning for that. And it just kind of seemed like a path of least resistance and kind of a surprise, you know, it wasn't exactly a focus or, you know, I'm going to be a singer, but it was a lot of fun and I kept getting asked to do it. So I, I, I did it. And and then I wanted to go to conservatory for undergrad, and I thought I would go to Peabody Conservatory in Baltimore, but my family said, that's not really a job, so <laughs> maybe um, you, you should you know, cast your net a little broader and look at something in the liberal arts. And so I, uh, I ended up going to Harvard University. Um, I ended up studying sociology and music, kind of a dual degree. and. Um, I realized that I, I thought I, I wanted to be close to the performing arts, you know, as a career and older in life and studying sociology was kind of my best route there. Um, I thought that if I could understand broadly why culture creates and propagates arts, then I could understand how to administrate them at the institutional level. And so that led to um, a lot of a lot of solid experiences in undergrad. I was. Um, in the Harvard Radcliffe Orchestra playing violin. I was the first general manager of that orchestra and then the president. And that was a, that's a 200 year old organization that's separate from the school. So, right. you know, as the as the student president, you answer to a board, you work a budget, you know, you oversee, um, you know, a whole staff of colleagues and friends trying to make this thing tick. And I also did similar work with the choir, sang in the Renaissance Polyphony Choir. Um, but yeah, a lot of kind of real uh, first experiences in college that would kind of be a foundation of the work that I'm up to now. And then graduating, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I thought I'd just like step out and try something. So right. I got an internship with the American Repertory Theater and I ended up basically working as a as a lowly um, associate producer. <laughs> um, you know, they were paying me four dollars and. 38 cents and <laughs> 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 um, a little bit, but I, I, I learned a lot on, on the ground. <clears throat> I learned a lot on the ground figuring out, you know, how does a theater run? How does it get programmed? How do you, this, the, the part of the theater that I worked with brought in a lot of, you know, traveling acts. So you learn how do different people do all kinds of different kinds of performing. And um, that that was really, really foundational experience. And then um, I ended up moving back to Virginia and working for uh, a symphony, actually, that I had uh, played for when I was younger, a regional symphony. Um, I wrote their grants. And instead of paying me, um, they asked me to be a board member, which was a very interesting thing, you know, <laughs> as a young Black 
uh, person just out of college being on a on a symphony board, which is a predominantly white and older, wealthy space. Um, but I was really excited to just figure it out. You know, I, I had a lot of energy from my just having gotten a sociology degree and trying to say, okay, well, if we're going to get grants, we need to understand demographics and the context right. of this organization and what you're trying to do. And I think it was a really great journey for me and that group of people to think, okay, what is the larger mission of this place? aside from, you know, just upholding some sort of uh, canon or status quo. And I, I worked for an educational nonprofit that connected um, low-income, high-potential high schoolers to academic celebrities and met a lot of different artists through that, including the author Amy Tan, who was very um, inspirational. Um, and I did all kind. I worked for George Mason University. I was a stage manager, and then I ended up being a production manager. I did a crazy thing where I actually ended up production managing an opera that I was also the lead in. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of crazy, and something I think I could only do when I was, you know, twenty-two. Um, you know, singing singing a role and then sitting in a three-hour production meeting afterward, and then getting you know to do it all again the next day, but. <clears throat> After doing all these different, um, you know, jobs and different angles of arts administration, I started to think, okay, what does grad school look like? You know, what am I going to do next? What's the next step? I've been working in the world for a little over two years, and I wanted to figure out, you know, how do I look for a path forward? And I thought maybe I'll go to business school and become an administrator, you know, uh, forthright. And looking at those applications, I realized this isn't me. No, <laughs> I don't not think at all. <laughs> that this is the path that <laughs> I want to walk down. I didn't want to take the GRE. I didn't want to take accounting classes. Um, you know, I wish I had though. No, that would have <laughs> helped a little bit. But um, I, I kind of challenged myself in saying, you know what, I actually do want to try to sing. And if I get into a school, I'll do that. And if I don't, I will look a little more closely at this, these business school applications. But um, I applied to Juilliard and a bunch of other schools, but got in at Juilliard and for the grad program and took that as a sign that I should pursue it. And yeah. um, from there, it was a really interesting experience. You know, I come from a broad liberal arts background in a place where um, interrogation of your academic experience was very encouraged. And there was a very clear due process for how you can ask questions about anything and you can try to chart your own path based on your interests, your passions. And in a conservatory setting, you are told what your passions and your <laughs> path are. You know, you're, you're prescribed um, a role or, you know, it, they're very much forthright about we, there are boxes and we will find which one you fit into and give you the skills to, you know, execute that box to the best of your ability. And um, that was an interesting and kind of hard transition. You know, yeah. um, I went back to school to hopefully attain skills to figure out what I wanted to say as a person or an artist. And so the idea that, you know, those those ideas would be preconceived for me um, was was a difficult pill to swallow. And so in graduating from Juilliard, um, I, I really I, I had a unique voice. You know, I, I'm, I'm a bass baritone, but not your typical bass baritone. I have a very high extension and a, a very low range as well. And um, 
it just it didn't seem like the boxes that they had you know were anywhere that i could fit and i felt uh, a little uh, not a little pretty discouraged you know i didn't think i'd have a career in singing when i left and um actually through um encouragement from the maestro lauren mazel who used to be the head of the new york philharmonic and a lot of other symphonies you know an older man who was just uh, very venerated in the operatic field. He had a, a summer music program that I went to, and he was very, very um, encouraging, which really surprised me because I hadn't received that encouragement in you know the other contexts I'd been in. And sure. it kind of started to grow in my own confidence and saying, okay, how can I figure out how to do this? And my way back into it um was singing um with a, a really good friend named Matt O'Coin, who now is a MacArthur genius and he was writing his first opera and I ended up being a, a lead in that opera just in the workshops you know just as they were trying to figure out what is this piece and it ended yeah. up being taken on by the American Repertory Theater the place where I used to be an intern now I was a lead singer in their new production which was quite an interesting you know spiral yes. of and that 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 led to further exposure and i met you know people like john adams who's an amazing you know opera composer of our time and peter sellers similarly opera director of our time and doing a lot of new works and i kind of entered you know the opera field from a from from left field yeah yeah <laughs> from doing contemporary work and pre premiering a lot of work i mean um my violin chops and piano chops served me well as a musician because um you know singing contemporary music requires a different um foundation of musicianship that i was able to apply and um yeah just <clears throat> similar to that way I, I really loved doing contemporary work <clears throat> I really loved doing contemporary work because um the reason for doing it was always clear you know back in Juilliard I would get confused when they say you have to learn all these German songs and it's like why why do <laughs> um, and they said that's this is the core repertoire this is these are the building blocks and they said okay but you know what about things that I I connect to more closely right. like I, I will do this and learn this but what about a song literature that is a little more close to my lineage or my my heritage and um doing new work it seemed like i was invited to be a part of the conversation of why which kind of led me to do what i think was my strongest work because there was a raison d'etre um and then having had a broad arts administration experience it led me to even be more curious and say, well, can I have a hand in making things myself or making things with friends and colleagues that I met along the way, which led to all kinds of stuff that I'm, you know, now in, in the midst of and in love with, you know, making projects that actually articulate things that I think are deeply important and deeply personal, but hopefully can be of service to the people that engage it. Wow. <laughs> and, and, and it's like, Fine. And one, thank you. Thank you for, for walking us through that and condensing it. Cause I'm, as I'm thinking like, as you're describing that, I was like, how, in what time frame? how old are you again? And that's, that's what I'm kind of going through. And I, I think, you know, being able to, one of the, the key things that, that stuck out to me was, you know, being able to connect with something that relates to who you are as an individual, like, you know, in this sort of space. And I hear it from artists all the time, especially artists that look like you and I, they're like, 
yeah, this is kind of the zone we're in and I'm kind of making this stuff and I don't know if they're going to get it. I don't know if I'm going to be accepted and so on. And I want to do stuff that actually, this is going to be a pun because I'm an old man. I want to <laughs> do stuff that sings to me, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I think that's not often afforded, but when you're able to do it and kind of seeing, you know, one of the things I looked at older interviews, one of the things that I think you touched on earlier um, you know, kind of being that that gifted student that's in this class that's full of like people who may not look like you. And it's kind of like doing that now in that sort of industry and being within classical music and doing like work that is related to who you are as a person and who your identities and the different tribes, if you will, that you're in, but doing it for an audience, they may not look for, like you. It's almost like cycling back and going back to what you've experienced maybe in the past. Definitely. And I, I think that way of working, which I share with a lot of close friends and, and colleagues, is more about honoring people for the fullness of their identity. Yeah. You know, um, in, in a classical music setting, um, there's this idea that our art or this art is about communicating something connecting to the human experience. But what does it mean for the people that are, quote unquote, executing that art to be treated as functionaries, you know, and then it's like, okay, what are they functionaries of? And you think about writers or composers. So composers are writing things that articulate, you know, their um, passions, their wants, their stories. But it's uh, this question of why is, you know, the incarnation of someone's existence only happening from one angle? Right. And and what does it also mean for an institution to bring that work to life? You know, they enlist people, but it can happen in a way and seems to have happened in a way for generations that the people enlisted to bring works to life are not actually honored as full human beings. It, it it seems that, that um there is there is a detriment of institutions not treating the artists and people in general you know staff administrators even as full humans that are engaging in this practice and i think that is something that yes exists within the arts to think about and work on but i think it's transferable to the rest right. of the world i think anybody that's in a working context or in community with other people should be considered yeah. people and you know part of how that shows up in in my work with with the the projects that I work on, you know, the most important question is, is <clears throat> the most important question is, how are you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how are you doing? What do you need? You know, um, before starting any day, you know, checking in with each and every person, whether that's a castmate, an administrator, a musician, a conductor, um, just to have that connectivity and say, you know, before we're doing this work, we are people foremost. And I think if there is that foundation, the work that comes out of that is going to be that much richer and that much more connected. Yeah. And I, I think that's really important. I, I look back and when I go over biographies and any of the notes that people send over, I always find it very interesting of like how weighty it is, how long it is and how someone describes themselves. And I've had a few that are are people that are kind of outside of the arts realm, but they really focus in the sort of uh, cultural specter. And Mm -hmm. they start off with, I'm a human, I'm a human first and really kind of checking in and being tapped in. And part of it is like, being likable, I suppose. And part of it is being able to to relate and be charismatic. There's maybe some politics in it. But I think, you know, looking at it, if we're able to really go back into the personal component, because I look at this, when I'm doing this podcast, I, and I think I talked about it a little bit before we got started, 
I don't want people to come off as this is a transaction. You give me what I need and we're going to go from here. And it's a certain degree of it's a contrivance here. It's, you know, you have the questions beforehand. We know that we're going to meet at this time and all of that. But being able to connect on a person to person sort of connection, that's where the important stuff comes in. Hey, how are you? What are you into? What are you thinking of? And, you know, I joke with people sometimes. It was like, so how long do I have? I was like, what can I talk about? I was like, look, if you want to talk about comics for like 30 minutes, we can talk about that. We could talk about Tom and Jerry if you want. And I don't want to make it feel like the guest is, it's only about their work. It's only about why do people know who you are? It's about who the person is, in my opinion. Um, what does it mean for you? Like from, 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 from you, what does it mean to like be a classical singer? Like what, how do you define it? What do you put around it? Um, when people come to me and they're like, so you're a podcast. I was like, no, I'm facilitating people telling their story. They're telling their story. I'm just providing a framework. That's how I define it. Oh, have you from what I do. So from what you do, how do you define what you do? Definitely. Um, yes, I'm a classical singer, but also more so I consider myself a singer and a creator. And it just so happens that the technique upon which my singing is built is derived from a Western European tradition. But by the very nature of, you know, the broadness of my identity, there's a lot of other cultural lineages and techniques at play. Um, but also my voice lends itself to a certain repertoire or a certain sort of sound that is connected to a certain genre. Um, but in terms of what does it mean to functionally be a classical singer, um, I think I've already been getting at it. I really took this idea of art as a means of personal expression really to heart. And it's made me have that lens and in interrogating everything that I interact with and everything that I do. You know, if it's not directly in service of honoring the humans involved, it's not necessarily something I want to be connected to. And so this notion of maybe changing what it might be to be a classical singer, I think is just a byproduct of trying to walk down what is a in our an incarnation of being a singer in the classical realm that feels like it is true to um, the integrity of that idea you know full expression as an individual which has led me to make things um i do think something that is unique about what i'm up to is that i do make things you know um a personal accomplishment um that happened this year was i uh was commissioned by the Los Angeles Philharmonic to create a piece um, for them and the Hollywood Bowl. And I made a piece called Concerto Number no. 2 Anthem. And it was the second concerto I made. I've started this concerto series because I used to play a violin and I realized I was never going to play a concerto on violin with an orchestra, but I thought maybe I can sing one. And so um, this, this second concerto called uh, Anthem is a piece that... Um, you know, met this fun opportunity to do the All Americana concert at the Bowl. And it made me think, okay, it's got to be something that utilizes that scale and utilizes that context. And I want to do a magic trick. And in this magic trick, I want to try to turn the Star Spangled Banner into the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing, over the course of three concerto movements as a means of saying, you know, here's the Star Spangled Banner, and it represents a lot in this country that perhaps is um, a faulty foundation yeah. and maybe has not upheld something that we're all happy with right now. I think you could ask a lot of people, and maybe they're not 
exactly happy with <laughs> where things are in this country. And I think we can look to our larger symbols like an anthem and the Star Spangled Banner being something that was born of war, yeah. born of colonialist ideals, born of things like um, calling people slaves. Um, or there's the argument about how they may be referring to indentured servants, but in any case, talking about the subjugation of another for the victory of a different group. Um, you know, I don't think these are great morals to be to be standing on, and it maybe hasn't led us to the greatest place, but um, I love the Black National Anthem. You know, James Weldon Johnson and his brother, J. Rosamond Johnson, made a beautiful thing that is about um, honoring the individual within the collective to honor the past so that we can stand united in our present and look towards, you know, some sort of brighter future um, facing the rising sun of our new day begun. So I wanted to say, okay, here's the Star Spangled Banner. Let me sing to you the other verses that might be a little more problematic mm -hmm. and kind of show music that underlines that, you know, it gets a little scary. It gets a little warlike. And then, in the second movement, we walk through some parts of Americana, but trying to reframe them in a way. Um, one example is the song God Bless America, which was um, sung by a woman named Kate Smith, who championed that song, premiered it for Irving Berlin and sang it quite a lot. But complexly, Kate Smith also sang the song uh, Pickin' Any Heaven, which, Oof. you know, is is on a pejorative um, for those that don't know. And um, it, it's a pejorative about, you know, children of color. Um, and <clears throat> it's 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 not about you know condemning this person, but it's about acknowledging that people can have you know uh, complicated relationships to race and what it means to make art about that and what it means to be a person that you know may not. Um, overtly understand that what they're doing can be harmful to other groups of people, but that people hold uh, multiple yeah. truths and, and facing that is, is critical. And, but <laughs> I had some fun in trying to reveal this uncomfortable dichotomy to the audience in mixing up the words of God bless America and pick in any heaven. Um, the words, the, the, the kind of conglomeration of words goes something like, um, God bless America, land that I haven't you been told of the place where the good little pickaninnies go <laughs> from the mountains to the prairies to the oceans white with great big watermelons rolling around and getting in your way in pickaninny heaven, my home sweet home. <laughs> wow, that is that is gold. Um, and, 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 and I like kind of being able to take these things and, and turn them on their heads. And I think it's important to in, in delving towards the truth and in delving and doing storytelling because i see that as another component of your background it's it, it, it's it's funny like i i look back at you know i was in the south um on uh juneteenth right and i was watching the coverage mm. and i was like did they just rebrand juneteenth because i was like the colors are not the same you know as the there's a juneteenth flag which ironically had the same mm. colors as the american flag I was like, so which one is it, guys? And I see a lot of the Pan-African colors, almost like this was a rebrand. I'm like, who, whose choice right. is this? So it's like, are you separating us from this? I was like, it's not that long ago. We could see this, this sort of history like right here and just some of the stuff that came with it. But I think in taking like, hey, this happened. And I'm combining with with this as far as <laughs> picking any heaven and um, just taking that approach. It's like, you know, these things happen, right? You know, <laughs> it's like reminding people because 
our memories are really short sometimes. And I think being able to look back at it and tell some of the stories and say, this is my perspective and being a person of color, being a person that is a, a male, being a person that has this sort of background or what have you. I think that that is important. I think that, you know, having those perspectives often they're, 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 they're overshadowed. They're kind of swept to the side, but being able to use your background, your acumen and the, the opportunity that, that you have to really show that as applauded, applauding that. Thank you. Um, yeah. And further to this <clears throat> idea of hopefully shifting what it means to be a classical singer, um, you know, making something like that or making, you know, uh, other pieces. I wrote a musical that um, hopefully will end up on Broadway in not too long, but I, I, I'm just hoping to offer the opportunity for singers and performing artists to have more agency with what they're doing and have a bigger voice within institutions to say, this is who I am and this is what I want to use, you know, my gifts or talents to do. And furthermore, for institutions to start actually asking the question, who are you? What what do you want to do and how can we offer our masked resources in order to support that you know the onus shouldn't come completely from the people that are perhaps at a disadvantage in terms of power um so in in changing i'm just hoping to model this opportunity for people to be more broadly supported for their multifaceted existence thank you thank you for that work um so I got I got two more real real questions, and then I want to hit you with those yeah. rapid fire questions. So, um, in, in peeling back the onion a bit, what would you say, like creatives? Because like you know, I imagine you know several creators. You've collaborated and all of this great stuff as well. Uh, what would you say, like? there's a secret or a trait that most creatives have. I remember reading or listening to a, a clip of Jay-Z saying that all creatives are just really like terrified that they're just scared or what have you. And it's, it's a thing. Mm. Um, and some people say, Oh, well, they're all like, they never think that they're good enough, but really they rise to the challenge or most of them are procrastinators from your vantage point. What is a trait that you think, you know, most creative share? I'm going to talk and maybe it'll come out. Okay. I'm, I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Being a creator is a very interesting, um, you know, role or task to take on or something to embody because you know by very the very definition you are you are making something that otherwise hadn't existed you know you are trying to pull together things that perhaps other people haven't seen and perhaps considered disparate or you're trying to pull something out of the ether or the universe that um you know and and make it incarnate and that's a very radical act and it takes you know uncommon ways of of reaching that and it takes people that are willing to play within the margins and the borders of what there is in order to imagine a new or a different way you know you can't create a new thing without kind of shifting or even breaking things that already are existing so that takes a lot of courage yeah. And it can be hard to, you know, um, or I guess a better way of, of putting it is that involves a certain level of vulnerability. You know, if you are to make something, you don't know how that's going to fare in the world. You hope that, or I hope that, you know, things that I make are in service of a broader context, or you hope that people will appreciate or understand or connect to. Um, and 
that that could lend itself to all kinds of behaviors, you know, whether that's um, fear from vulnerability, whether that's um, insecurity, whether that is seemingly procrastination. I mean, <laughs> I, I've just commonly taken to the idea now that when I'm presented with an opportunity to make something, a lot of times it's just got to go in, in the back corner or it's got to go in the back kitchen in my mind and, and just marinate. You know, I, I've grown to a place of just trusting that there is work happening, even if you're not completely upset obsessed or focused on it in the front of your mind. Some things just need time to settle. And it's kind of also honoring, you know, a deeper consciousness that hopefully is attuned to this possibility of making something out of what was not there. <laughs> so yeah, being a creator is a, is a, is a unique, <laughs> a, a unique way to be in the world. Yeah. Um, I, I, I agree. And it's, it is this, this thing where, we, you know, as creators, we, we need time just to kind of do nothing. That marination that you describe, that, that is a thing. Like, um, I, I try to like, it's like, Hey, create, do it, make it happen. I was like, I, I got nothing for you, but it hits me when I'm not expecting it. And it's like, all right, let me come up with some questions. Oh, this would be a good idea. Or, you know, like, like I said, I'm an old man. I'm like, I'm, I'm 37. I'm an old man. So everything is a pun. Everything is a dad joke. And I'm like, all right, how can I turn this goofy pun into maybe programming? And what does that yeah. look like and really building off of it? But I can't just say, let me turn the key and something good is going to come out. It's like, let me write this down. And then to you, to your point, leave that in the kitchen and come back to it. Yes. And that, that just made me think, you know, so, so now I, um, I co-teach, a course at Harvard in interdisciplinary storytelling um, with one of my best friends and collaborators. It's called um, How to Be a Tool, <laughs> Storytelling Across Disciplines. <laughs> you know, um, we just wanted to say how did how did we teach how to be a tool at Harvard? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> but um, no, it, it, <laughs> it also has, you know, a, a bit of truth in that it's, you know, how to be a tool for storytelling, how to be a tool for change um, in society. And something that we are always working through with our students is the idea that it's okay to not know everything. Yeah. It's okay to, you know, people say it's okay to fail. And I think the saying it that way is, is really scary to people because you don't want to think, oh my God, I'm going to in impendingly fail. But I think another way to frame it is it's okay to try again. You know, it's okay to make something, look at it, conceive of, you know, how did this do? How did this live up to my purpose and my values? And then go and reassess, you know, you're allowed to go back to the drawing board and visit over and over and over again. That's the joy of making something is it, it's part of a practice. Yeah. You know, you really can continue to shape and mold until something gets there. No one gets everything right on the first try. And in fact, you probably don't want the first yeah. try of a lot of people's things, whether that's a vehicle or or, or a musical, yeah. you know, you want people to spend some time tinkering and, and honing that thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I look at comedians, uh, you know, it's a large swath of people that I interview on here talk to comedians and it's like, all right, when you first were like working through that new material, how did that go? You know, I, I don't, I don't mm. want to see you on that first night. I want to see you like midway through, like, all right, it's polished, right. it's refined. You took out that, right. that weird joke at the beginning and now it's something that's actually good. Um, <laughs> so this is the last real question I got and it's more of self-serving. It's more shameless pluggy, but, um, I, I want to see what's next. I, I read that, you know, might be a Baltimore debut coming up. Some big things happen in 23, uh, 22, 23 season. So let's uh, tell me about what's coming up. What's on the radar? Yeah, um, there, there's there's some fun stuff coming up. Um, most most 
closely. Um, I'm going to make my New York Philharmonic debut, singing Beethoven 9. Um, I'm about to make my Carnegie Hall recital debut um, with a piece I made called Recital Number no. 1 uh, Mass, which blends a lot of different music from, um, you know, my earlier experiences um, to try to tell a story about how people can deal with problems. Um, <clears throat> I am... What am I doing? I'm going to the Cleveland Orchestra and I'm singing in the beautiful, beautiful Severance Hall, one of my favorite pieces um, called El Nino by John Adams. And it's kind of a modern retelling of the, the Messiah story, but from a um, predominantly female and Latinx perspective. Nice. And it's just some of those gorgeous music ever. Um, what else? Uh, yes, Baltimore. Coming to Baltimore on November 6th and singing this recital program. And I'm so excited to share that with the place that I now call home. Um, and yeah, then hopefully I'll go go eat so much uh, turkey and oyster stew, my favorite Thanksgiving <laughs> food that my grandmother makes. That's, yeah. that's great. That's great. Um, that's it's great to hear. And it's great to, to hear that it's more like um, folks in the classical arts that are kind of changing, like how it's being viewed and, and bringing that to Baltimore. It's like we're classing mm. up the place. I love it. I love to hear it. <laughs> uh, not to say we're not classy, by the way. You know, I'm a Baltimore. Sure. So, I can't knock it. <laughs> so uh, real quick, I want to hit you with some rapid fire questions. Uh, and since you talked about food is great because I have a food related question in here to start off. Let's not overthink it. Let's not overthink it. Here we go. Uh, breakfast food or dinner food? Which one are you going with? What What is your like favorite between the two? Are you a breakfast food or a dinner food sort of guy? Definitely dinner food. Breakfast is functional. Dinner is joy. <laughs> I love it. It's like, I'll take that oatmeal dinner. Uh, yeah, so, so that turkey sandwich, right? Can we get all the trimmings? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Uh, this is ridiculous. Uh, what was the What was the last word that you looked up to see what it meant? Like you're very verbose. Uh, you have some terms. I've heard some things come out. I'm looking them up now. Wait, <laughs> there were there were two. Um, yeah, my my best friend used two words that I, I looked up. I kind of knew what they meant, but it, it, I never heard them used that way. He used the words um, agita and imbroglio. Um, you know, Italian terms that might be in opera, but agita meaning like a lot of nervous energy around something and imbroglio meaning it's kind of like a big, dense mess. <laughs> so you're just describing me as a podcaster in both words. Thanks. I, I, I appreciate the I appreciate that. Uh, I, I, I threw out every now and again, I throw out these marketing phrases when I talk to people. I was like, oh, yeah, you're a cultural impresario. The guy I told him, he looked at me, he was like, yeah, I'm stealing that. He's like, I'm using that. Um, Beautiful. When are you most productive? It could be, you know, time of the day, time of the year, like, you know, in terms of like planning now, like looking at things like on a Monday, I'm at my most productive in terms of prepping. But during the course of the week, it's like you get me on a Friday. I got no questions for you. It's got to be just the work. None of the practice, just the work. Completely. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess sometimes I have that, you know. Uh, 11, 11 o'clock at night burst of, of some sort of inspiration. But I think in terms of like doing hard focus work, late morning is good. And then um, once I get past a certain hour in the day, say uh, six or seven, the brain shuts off or can only do, you know, a certain style yeah. of, of work. <laughs> yeah, it's like early morning. It's like, here's some algebra. I can work on that. Afternoon, it's like, look, what, what is this? What are we doing again? Um <laughs> This is the last one I got for you. And this is, I've said it before multiple times during this podcast that I'm an old man and I like puns. So I hope you get a sense of what I'm looking for with this next answer. What would the name of your autobiography be? Ah, 
let's see do we want the the g-rated or this <laughs> um you can have more than one it's like oh this is my memoir this is the one leading up to the real one i don't know i think i, I think it could be something like how can you do better okay okay you know or try harder or something that's kind of a provocation that you know i've, I've had to have for myself but hopefully invite other people to hold as well you know yeah. something that deals with um a continual process of of reflection and 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 self self you know change and refinement just as any creative process is iterative you know see here, here's the thing Devon you 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 didn't you didn't do the thing I was hoping for best <laughs> I was hoping for best of times but you didn't go for it. you didn't take the bait ah all right all right let me think <laughs> I mean, but I think that I think it, but yours absolutely works. Me, I'm just lowbrow and everything is a bit to me. But what you described works. <laughs> I think I might just name it Imbroglio. See, they, they, <laughs> you know what? That actually works. That works really well. That works really well. So shout out to you. Mm -hmm. and, thank, and thank you. And thank you for that. And thank you for indulging the uh, rapid fire questions. Uh, so of course. with that, um, I want to, again, thank you for coming on to this podcast. And I want to invite and encourage you to tell the fine folks where to check you out, where to follow you, social media, website. The floor is yours. Definitely. Um, yeah, you can follow me on Instagram, also an opera singer. I try to share more about, you know, what I'm up to and um, just what process is like. Um, and yeah, feel free to message me. I always try to respond to people. Well, there you have it, folks. I want to again thank Devon Tynes for coming on to the podcast. And I'm Rob <laughs> Lee saying that they're, they're, they're voices, big voices, verbose voices, charismatic voices in and around Baltimore. You just got to look for them. <laughs>